Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, just, I don't know if you want to put a marker in your Bible. And close. We're going to read our text at the end of the sermon. Usually you do it at the beginning. And we're going to do it at the end. But I, I want you to know where it is in Colossians chapter 1. Last week we began a new series on creation. And as I mentioned last week, I'm indebted to two books in particular uh, for guiding me in the series. Uh, God's Good World, Reclaiming the Doctrine of Creation by Jonathan R. Wilson, who does not teach at Pepperdine, as I erroneously said last week, that's somebody else. Uh, he teaches up in Vancouver at the Cary Theological College. And then a book by Mark Mitchell called The Politics of Gratitude, Scale, Placing Community in the Global Age. The reason for the study, in part, is that the doctrine of creation has been neglected for the past three centuries, and as a result, it has become somewhat atrophied um, why it has been neglected is something we looked at last Sunday. What I want to do and to focus on by way of review are the results in the life of the church of the neglect of the doctrine of creation. As I said last week, if you don't have enough iron in your diet, if you lack iron, you will develop anemia. If you don't have enough vitamin C, you will develop scurvy. Well, if we do not have a healthy doctrine of creation, what, how will that show up in the church? Uh, how will we know that something is wrong? The first thing I mentioned is Gnosticism, that ancient heresy that even today seems to have uh, influence, which is quite discouraging. The world, in this way of thinking, is divided into good and evil. So far, so good. We get that. But for them, good is spirit, and anything that is material, anything that is matter, is automatically evil. And so, in this way of thinking... Creation has not fallen from a good state, and therefore capable of redemption. Creation has been evil from the very get-go. Because it is material, because it is matter, then creation is always seen as evil and really having no value. So redemption is not for creation. It's only for the immaterial, the spiritual, the soul part of the individual. As I said last week, if you read Genesis 1, I think that this is easily seen as not a truthful view. The second result, and this is sort of a, a low-grade infection of Gnosticism, and that is disembodiment. Um, the church has developed this in that the church, I think, particularly in the 20th century, now even in the 21st century, has failed to develop a theology of the, of the body. We have a lot of rules about the body in certain Christian traditions, but there's little or no theology to explain why we should keep these rules or why the body is important. In fact, important. As Wilson pointed out, and I gave a quote out last week, it seems that everybody else has a theology of the body, but the church has failed to do this. There are those who want to sell us all manner of things to improve our bodies. They are teaching us a theology of the body. Those who tell us that our bodies are beyond improvement are teaching us a theology of the body. Those who tell us that extending our bodily, bodily lives is the priority for personal and social planning have a theology of the body. Those who ask us to use our bodies to serve the corporation, the state, or the cause of democracy have a theology of the body. What, but the church doesn't. And why doesn't it? Um, I mentioned several, weeks, several reasons last Sunday. But in fact, it's almost cyclical, a neglect of the doctrine of creation in, essence, in turn leads to a neglect of the doctrine of creation. 
The third result that we saw is a really twisted or truncated view of salvation. Do we need to be saved? Absolutely. Is God and Christ our only hope for being saved? Yes, indeed. But what is salvation? The Gnostics saw salvation as dealing only with the soul or the spirit, the release of our spirits from our bad bodies, our material bodies. And that belief often is very close to what we hear today, even among evangelicals, that you get saved, and then when you die, your soul, your spirit goes to heaven, where you'll be with God forever, and not a word about the body. They are functionally, they are practically Gnostic when they teach us this. I want to add one more consequence, or one more thing that we see as a result of the neglect of the doctrine of, the, of creation, and that is... Christians fail to see the church as culture. The church is to be understood as culture. What does this mean? The way that we use the stuff of creation, okay, the buildings that we build, the music that is written and played, the paintings, the food, money, books, water, and so much more, these reflect how we view creation. They also teach us how we are to think about creation. But again, due to a truncated view of salvation, creation is only seen as its, in terms of its utility. How can I use the stuff of creation in order to convince someone to get saved? Or someone who's not living the kind of Christian life that they should, how can I use music perhaps to influence them? Uh, or a painting... Uh, so that you find, at least for a while, a whole school of Christian painters who did not find it sufficient to to paint a wonderful painting, but a Bible verse had to be added at the bottom uh, so as to somehow convince or persuade the person who's looking at the painting. If we see the things of this world only as instrumental to the salvation of the soul, then we have reduced the gospel to much less of what God intends. If we see music or visual presentation as merely as a means to move people in the direction that we want them to go, obviously toward faith in Christ, but move them in a particular direction, then we have been unfaithful to the gospel. Creation is fallen from what it was. It has become the world that needs to be redeemed. It must be redeemed. So I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be undisciplined in our view of culture. But we must remember that creation is not instrumental to salvation. It is the very substance. It's the very substance of salvation in Jesus Christ. It is not enough that we have the arts in church. We must have them in the life of the church in the right way. And what is the right way? as a celebration and participation in the reconciling of all things, the reconciling of all things, visible and invisible, to God through Jesus Christ. The stuff of creation is what God the Son redeems through his becoming flesh, bearing our sin, enduring death, and rising to life. If we have a truncated view of salvation, which results from a neglected uh, doctrine of creation, this has had and will continue to have a devastating effect on the church. So that the church, I think, through 
well, let's, let's stick to our own period of time, very much gets its culture from the world, from surrounding society. And any culture that might be found in the church oftentimes is purely utilitarian. One could argue that there is no beauty about it. And I would say it's because people have they've neglected the doctrine of creation and therefore have an unhealthy view of God's creation. What I want to do today is to consider the diseases, the pathologies, the results of the neglect of the doctrine of salvation in two other areas, the academy or the university, higher education, and society. Now, you might immediately object and, and remind me that it is not our business to judge the world. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is quite clear about that. But I would have you consider that, first of all, we are part of society. And the effects on society are, in fact, the effects on us. And I would tell you to actually look at the impact on society is much more difficult than we might imagine. It has been suggested uh, to examine and understand our culture would be like asking a fish to examine and understand and explain water. It's what they are in. It's what surrounds them. And our culture surrounds us as well. It's almost an impossible task because we are immersed in the surrounding culture. We see and think and act within the formation of our lives. But I think we must, as difficult as the task is, work at understanding the culture in which we live. Secondly, and we've seen this before, that the ideas in the surrounding culture inevitably end up in the church. It's not as though somehow we have some lead barrier that keeps all non-Christian thought out. Uh, It comes into our thinking as well. We've seen this time and time again. And again, I mentioned what Ben spoke on, why it is so difficult for us as as Americans uh, to accept God as king. Because we don't do kings. Monarchy isn't part of our thinking. And that has affected the church as well. The third thing, and I, I want to say this without seeking to make it instrumental, how can we share, how can we proclaim the good news if we do not understand the language of our culture? I'm reminded Uh, Some years ago, decades ago, there was a German missionary group that went to Brazil, to the Amazon region, to evangelize the Indians there. And what they did was, first of all, they taught the Indians German, and then they preached to them in German. Uh, I would suggest that that doesn't make a lot of sense. But in many ways, if we speak Christianese, if we are limited in our vocabulary, if we don't understand what's going on in the culture around us, we will practically be doing the same thing. What we call good news, I would argue that many people in our society do not call good news. In fact, if anything, they hear it as bad news. N.T. Wright, uh, who's written quite a bit and for a while was a chaplain at Oxford, he was teaching there, and he, re- he said that often some of the undergraduates would come in and say when they first arrived, well, you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. And he would then ask, well, what God is it then that you don't believe in? Which would really puzzle them, and they responded by speaking of an old man with a beard sitting on a cloud, looking down, being cross with us, sending some people to heaven and others to hell. Wright would then say, well, I've got great news for you. I don't believe in that God either. See, we have to know what people in the culture are saying. And as Ben mentioned, this is from an interview. We have to know the culture better than it knows itself. 
So I think it is important for us to see the effects of a neglected doctrine of creation in the academy, in the university, as well as in society. Okay, so let's look at the academy um, briefly. I'll spend more time on society. I want to look at two results of the neglect of the doctrine of creation. I'm setting aside the whole business of science. We talked about that last week, and I think we will come back to it later on. But there have been two results, and both deal with the area of knowledge. First of all, wisdom has been abandoned in favor of techne, or technique. Techne is, is the root of the word. What is wisdom? In the Old Testament, wisdom is seen as the craftsperson who shapes creation. Look at the book of Proverbs. In the New Testament... That is Jesus. He is presented as wisdom incarnate. So what becomes apparent when you read through scripture is that wisdom is the way to know creation and to know how to make our our way in the world as God's creation. If you do not know that you are a creature in God's creation and God is the creator, then you will not be wise. You will not be wise. If you read the opening verses of the book of Proverbs, you have a full range of knowledge, including insight, understanding, good judgment, shrewdness, administration. And all of these reflect character and skill. Character and skill that enable us to navigate life according to the Creator's intention. God made us. He knows what is best. We need to know what it is that God intends for us. This wisdom knows that the world belongs to God, that the world can be understood properly only in light of that relationship, that life is only found in this way, and that the love for God and love for creation align God's purposes with the only way for life. Well, what about techne or technique? It begins with the assumption that there is, in fact, no God. It requires humans to master the world. There is no God to trust, to call out to, who can help us when we are in trouble. So technique, particularly as it evolves uh, during the Enlightenment, and we see this really in the 19th century, technique means in solving every problem by, by reducing it to a matter of steps. There came a fundamental belief that the human mind could understand almost everything if you broke it down into its component parts, steps, and details. And much of human existence was done that's what was done to it as people began to write. Sociology emerges at this time as a science, as people began to figure things out. This is part of one of my lectures, and as I say to my students, how do you eat an elephant? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. That's technique. Every problem is seen as solvable. You just need to know what steps to use. And we see this in the rise of modern science with observation. Um, unfortunately, amazing things have been done, but everything is seen as cause and effect within a closed system. And so one cause, one effect, and the other effects, in fact, oftentimes are neglected. Let me just ask you, has this thinking come into the church? It seems that there is no aspect of the Christian life, life, okay, which somebody has not written a book about that is a matter of steps, like five steps to spiritual maturity or the four spiritual laws. Even the adage garbage in, garbage out 
reduces people to the mechanical devices, having no place for God's work or God's grace. The reality of wisdom, in light of the Creator and His creation, has been forgotten. Even in the church, the people who are supposed to know God, who are to know the Creator, because they have neglected the matter of His creation, the doctrine of creation, they have lost their way when it comes to wisdom. The amazing mystery of how it is that we become the children of God through the work of Jesus Christ by the grace of God has now simply been reduced to simply knowing the right steps. This leads to a second result in the academy. It's what I would call non-participatory knowledge. That is to say, in the modern world, there's a difference or there's a distance between the knower and the thing that is known. There's no connection between them except that I am the one who knows and this is what I know. Um, This is a fundamental assumption in enlightenment thinking and the rise of the empirical method. But the doctrine of creation makes it clear that we cannot know apart from our participation. Our participation in the very processes that we are seeking to know. I could spend a lot of time, I don't want to go any further with this, except to say that knowing in the academy and in society, and in many ways in the church, is non-participatory. We know facts. We have information. This is not what we find in Scripture. And I would remind you, gently, that in the Old Testament, when it would speak of the relations between a husband and his wife, he would say that he knew her. I suggest that we have a much more sterile view of knowledge as a result of the fact that we have neglected the doctrine of creation. Let's move on to the results in society. First of all, there is the absence of teleology, a big word. It simply means that we have, society does not believe that there is a purpose, that there is a goal, that there is an end, a telos, for society. Whatever purpose it has is one that we have assigned, but it's not inherent. It wasn't because they don't believe that God created the world, then the world simply came into being, and therefore we're here, uh, but we're not quite sure why. We believe that God created creation and gave it purpose. But if society, like the Academy, rejects the existence of God, then the focus is not on the purpose of creation, but rather on the assumed causes. And the belief is that all causes exist in nature. It's a closed system. There is no God. And so everything that happens, happens because of what is in that system. There's nothing else but what is in that system. Inevitably, humans take it on themselves to assign the purpose to nature that we know. And in the end, no pun intended, Creation is seen as a burden and a curse. Perhaps one of the most damaging effects of the neglect of the doctrine of creation is that now we speak of nature rather than creation. And then you, you might say, Damon, you're just quibbling. It's a matter of vocabulary. But, you know, oftentimes I say nature and maybe you do as well. So it's just like, you know, you say nature, I say creation. It seems to be the same thing. Consider. 
To speak of nature rather than creation is to turn away from the conviction that this world can be understood and explained only through some account of the world in relation to God as creator. In other words, we do not look to God as the explanation for what we have and why we have it, why creation is here. Instead, we turn to the world as self-explanatory to be fully explained and understood without reference to anything outside of itself. The shift to nature from creation involves the belief that this world is all there ever has been or ever will be. It's a closed system. Every cause and effect is already within the system. There's nothing else. This is it. Well, can you imagine how that might affect one's view of prayer? If there is no other work at, uh, there's no other force at work, if there's nothing else possible in a closed system, then why do we pray? Something all equally damaging is the view that we are products. One of the consequences of seeing the world as nature instead of creation is that creatures, and here I will focus on humans, are seen as products rather than creatures. If we say that we are creatures, then our identity, our meaning, our life depend on our relationship to the one who created us. Somebody made us. So you made us. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? If we say that we are products, then our identity, our meaning, our life depend on something else entirely. Consider the debate, nature versus nurture. Why are you the way that you are? Well, you know what? No matter which side of the debate you take, you're on the same side of the fence. Nature and nurture, you're both saying a person is a product, as opposed to someone who is wonderfully and fearfully made. And the forces that we see as making us a product get blamed for our failures, our genes, our families, our traumas, our failures, our successes, our biological makeup, the market forces around us, ideologies, brain chemistry, and so much more. This is what is to blame for my failure, for why I didn't do what I was supposed to do. By the way, for the, for the wonderful things I have achieved, I, I will take credit for that. Thank you very much. But for the things I did not, then that's really not my fault. It's because of everything else. When a person is not seen as a creature, merely as a product, then we are vulnerable to all kinds of anti-human and anti-life ideologies. The church's answer must be a healthy doctrine of creation and the significance of life. And we are to accept and delight in the fact that we are creatures. But sadly, I would say the church in our age is almost indistinguishable from society. The church displays the same anxieties and fears, the same susceptibilities, the same immaturity that are on display throughout society can be displayed in the fearful and anxious ways we participate in the life of society, fighting culture wars, tying the future of the gospel to legislative and electoral results. It can be seen in the desperate way we depend upon medical care, increasing prosperity, national security. These things are not bad in themselves, but the way that we depend upon them 
reveals the convictions oftentimes that they are the source of our lives. That's why we are so frantic about them. If we recover a healthy belief in human creatureliness, then we will come to see that we do not belong to ourselves or to anything else that promises us life. We belong to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who made us, who sustain us, who redeem us, who will go with us through death, who will bring us to life again in the new creation. To be creaturely is to be cared for and to be sustained by life that is inexhaustible and unconquerable. When we know that our identity is secure in God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we can begin to discern what is true of us, the good and the bad. One more area and then we will stop. That's business. Most of us are not owners of business, but we, are, we do participate in a consumer economy. And one of the places that the neglect of the doctrine of creation is seen in the realm of business. It's in the practice of business that we see creatures, indeed all created beings, captured and consumed for the use of others. This is what it means, I think, to live in a consumer society. If we recover a healthy doctrine of creation to guide our business practices, we will come to know that we live in a world not of scarcity, but of abundance. In our world, the discipline of economics and the practice of business are limited by the horizon of this world. And so in many ways, economics and business helps us understand how the world works. But they are studying a world that has fallen away from its original intent, its telos from God. They are studying a world that does not believe in Christ, does not believe that creation is going to be redeemed for the new creation. But we are God's people. We are to believe that God is the creator and we are his creatures. And that creation and redemption depend on the inexhaustible and unconquerable life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. See, I think we're, much, we're, we're like Thomas Malthus. We're much more Malthusian. We believe that we're going to run out of stuff. Now, this doesn't mean we should not be good stewards. But what is our view of creation? Do we live in fear? Or do we have some sense of God's abundance? See, the world of scarcity in the fallen world is not the last word. The last word is the world of abundance that will finally be revealed in the new creation. So what are we to think? What are we to say in light of how the academy and society have come to think in light of the neglect of the doctrine of creation? Last Sunday we looked at gratitude. Today I would suggest to you two things for you to consider this week. The first is the abundance of creation. Jonathan Wilson insists it is superabundance. For modern people, this just does not sound right. We've been told about scarcity. As Christians, we believe that creation has fallen, but we also believe this is not the final word. word. If creation is rooted in the life of God, sustained by God, then creation, though finite and dependent, participates in the superabundance of God's life. Again, as modern people, we are much more persuaded 
we're much more inclined towards scarcity than we do abundance. And I would say I would struggle in this area as well. Um, it is interesting that God through Moses, told the story of creation to his people after he had rescued them from Egypt. And there they had lived in a country of scarcity. And for 40 years in the wilderness, they had abundance. I suspect that we are much more like some of the Israelites, though, that go out the Sabbath day looking for more, failing to realize that God has provided all that we need. The second thing that I would have you consider, and it's tied to the first, is the relationship between creation and redemption. So I said last Sunday, I hope that we will see in this series that creation and redemption as doctrines belong together. Redemption isn't simply something that happens in the arena of creation. I think far too often we've thought that. Even this day, we have affirmed the goodness of creation. Met in this beautiful building as we have sung. We have eaten, had something to drink, and that in the context of what Jesus Christ has done for us in redeeming us. Now, if you would open to our text. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning at verse number 15. Speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here we have a wonderful statement of the redemption, the reconciliation of all things through the work of Christ. I would have you think for a moment. If creation as a doctrine and redemption as a doctrine go together and we believe that Jesus Christ is going to reconcile all things to himself by his grace, his super abundant grace, if you wish, then should that not in fact affect our view of creation? I think, by the way, that we do not think much of the grace of God because we don't think much of creation. We see creation as a realm of scarcity. And so oftentimes we see grace as being somewhat scarce. Rather than having a sense that it is the Lord Jesus who created us, who sustains us, who is reconciling all things to himself by his grace, that superabundant grace is present in creation. And then rather than taking a Malthusian view of things that we're going to run out of things, and again, we are to be good stewards, but we should not imagine that we live in a world of scarcity, but of abundance, because we worship the Creator who is infinite, who in His 
superabundant grace and love is working to reconcile, to redeem us to himself. And one day we'll make a new heaven and a new earth. The Lord willing, we will continue this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we would confess that we are far more modern and scientific in our thinking about things than we are Christian oftentimes. We think of the environment, we think of nature more than we think of creation. And the way the academy thinks, the way society thinks, is oftentimes the way that we think. We find ourselves grabbed, almost choked by the same fears and anxieties of the society around us. We need, by your grace, to recover a healthy doctrine of creation. And in the process, see that redemption is part of that same story. And how we see you acting in redemption should give us insight into how you act in creation. And if you have infinite grace, why would we think anything less about your creation? By your grace, may we not be conformed to the way this world thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I thank you that you brought us here today together. You've gathered us to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. For those who will be traveling, for Gia tonight to Seattle, for Leah and Tali as they go back to Tyler, for the novelists as they come back to us, for everyone that is traveling, that you would give them safety. For each one of us as we walk through this world, your creation in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence and your abundant grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.